is where you should be as we're going to begin to look at the life of Samson. Father, we do ask that you just bless this time, settle our hearts right now. We thank you for the time of worship, and Lord, we just ask that you would just help us to right now just open our hearts to you and being attentive and, and Lord, learning. Perhaps some of us have had a long day. Maybe we've been at work since early this morning. And Lord, um, I ask that you would help us, Lord, to gain from the text that we're going to read that you want us to, to be edified and encouraged, to learn, Lord, to draw close to you. And Father, that you would convict, that you would just do a marvelous work in this place tonight. Bless all the kids that are being taught tonight. And I pray that all of us would leave this place more in love with you and knowing you more than when we came in. That's our desire, and that's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 13 of Judges, we read again, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And so familiar here verse that, that we see repeated over and over again in the book of Judges as they're in this time of their history of 400 years where they're rebelling against the Lord. And they're in this cycle of, of turning away from the Lord and going after those false gods of the Canaanites, the worshiping Baal and Astaroth and some of the other false gods. And as a result of that, they would find themselves in bondage. They would find themselves the bondage to all those different Canaanite tribes and nations that surrounded them. And so they would cry out to the Lord. They would throw away their idols for a time, and then God, out of his mercy and grace, would raise up a judge to deliver them. And so that's what we've been looking at over the last several weeks, as we saw Ehud was one that was raised up, as he would free them from the Moabites, Eglon, as they were in bondage, and he would lead the troops against them. And then Deborah, as we saw in chapter 4, and Barak, as, as they would be freed from the Canaanites and the bondage there. And then we saw Gideon. Remember Gideon and his 300 men that would defeat the 135,000 Midianites, a wonderful story, incredible story that we looked at as Gideon was raised up. And then last week we saw Jephthah, and Jephthah was one that was raised up by the Lord to free them from the Amorites. And so all these judges being used of the Lord in a very powerful and mighty way. We're going to look at a very familiar individual here in Scripture. His name is Samson. And, of course, I think that in this room, most of us have heard the story about Samson or some of his story. Even non-believers are familiar with Samson. Whenever they hear that name, they know it's a story out of the Bible. They relate him with Delilah, Samson and Delilah. But it's a very familiar portion of Scripture that we're getting into. And Samson is going to be raised up at this time in the days of the judges. And, of course, we have been looking at these different judges, some of them in detail, as I mentioned to you, Eglon and Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah. Some of the other judges, that, as we see, they're just briefly mentioned to us. And so 12 of the judges are mentioned here in the book of Judges, Samson being number 12. We finish chapter 12 looking at the last three judges before Samson, and very little is told about them, but they were used of the Lord to judge Israel. And Samson, as he's raised up, he's going to judge Israel now for about 20 years. And he's going to be unique in that, that he is not going to lead an army against the enemies. Samson is a one-man show here. He is 
uh, a one-man weapon that is going to make Rambo look like a sissy, okay? He is going to go against the Philistines with this incredible strength that the Lord is going to give to him. And one of the things that we will see very clearly with the life of Samson is that he had such potential to be used of the Lord. He was used in a mighty way. But we're going to see what happens when we end up walking our life after the flesh, when we make bad decisions, when we end up compromising and sinning. And what could have been even, I believe, uh, more of an incredible story in the life of Samson ended up, we're going to see at the end of his life, being a tragedy because he compromised and because he played around with sin. So powerful lessons and application to be made as we go through this section of, of Judges here. And we're going to look at from the life of Samson, from his birth all the way to his death. So here are the children of Israel. They've been in bondage for 40 years. This is the longest that they've been in bondage to their enemy in the days of the Judges that we have seen so far. And their enemies right now are the Philistines. Before it was, as I mentioned to you, the Moabites, and then it was the Canaanites, and then it was the Midianites under Gideon, and then it was the Amorites. So all those enemies that have put them under bondage that God has freed them from, now it's the Philistines. Now the Philistines, we've heard a little bit about as we've been going through the Old Testament. We've, we've read a little bit about them when Joshua came into the promised land with the children of Israel and they began to conquer the land. And they did a, some battle against the Philistines and defeated them, but they did not completely drive them out. And what we are going to see now is the Philistines are going to be the main enemies of the children of Israel between now and during the time of David, up until the death of David. And David, as as we know, as we read in 1 Samuel, Saul's doing battle against the Philistines, and then David, of course, he's in the territory of the Philistines, and then in 2 Samuel, when David becomes king, he is doing battle against the Philistines. The Philistines are going to be a really uh, a problem and, and a, uh, one that is a thorn in the side of the children of Israel from this time out until the days of David. And so here they are. They, they are in that area, the Philistines, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, when Joshua came into the land, he conquered the land for about seven years. They did battle and driving out the Canaanites. And then for the next 13 years, what they did is they divided up the land. And each of the tribes got their allotment. They, they got their territory of land that they were to raise their families in. And so the tribe of Dan is an area west of Jerusalem over to the Mediterranean Sea. It was that area that encompassed the area of the Philistines. And so Samson here is a Danite from the tribe of Dan, and he again is going to be raised up to free them from the bondage of the Philistines that they have been under for 40 years now. And so we begin to read about uh, the birth of Samson in this chapter. We see in verse 2, Now there was a certain man from Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said, to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And no razors shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So here is this woman, married to Manoah. She is not named here in uh, chapter 13. And she is barren, and of course in those days that was something that 
was a big deal for women to be barren when they were married uh, because inheritance was very important back in ancient Israel. And so she sees the angel of the Lord, and as we continue reading here, the angel of the Lord speaking to her, I believe that this very clearly is a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. You've got to remember something, that Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born as the babe of Bethlehem. That's when God became a man. So Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became what? Flesh and tabernacled among us. So Jesus has existed from all eternity past. He's the second person of the Godhead Trinity, God the Son. And so here's a Christophany of Jesus that, that comes, the angel of the Lord that is speaking to Manoah's wife. And he says to her that you're going to have a son and he is going to be a Nazarite. He's going to take the Nazarite vow from the time that he's in your womb, before he's even born. So a Nazarite vow, we, we saw that, what that was all about in Numbers chapter 6, you might recall. And in Numbers chapter 6, the vow of the Nazarite was a vow of dedication to the Lord. And what that vow included was that they were not to take any wine. They weren't even to touch any grapes. They were not to touch anything unclean. That would include dead bodies and carcasses. And, and they were not to eat anything unclean. And also, the Nazarite was not to put a razor to their head. They were not to cut their hair. So you, Mom, you make sure, because he is going to be a Nazarite, from the time he's in your womb, you make sure you're not eating anything that is unclean. Make sure that you're not drinking any wine or anything like that because your son is going to take that Nazarite vow and he's going to free the children of Israel from the bondage of the Israelites. You know, I find that interesting that here is the Lord saying that to, to Samson's mom, that I have separated him, I haven't called him from your womb when you conceive. I got a plan for him. It reminds me so much of what Paul the Apostle writes in Galatians chapter 1. He says that it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb to be an apostle. God had a plan for Paul before he was even born, when he was in his mother's womb. We know in Luke chapter 1, you remember the story of Zacharias? He's in the temple there, and there's Gabriel, the angel that shows up, and him and, and his wife, Elizabeth, been trying to have a, a, a son, a, a baby, but she was barren in their old age. And Gabriel says that you guys are going to have a son. Your wife is going to conceive. And God's got a mighty plan for him because he is going to fulfill prophecy He's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. His name is going to be John, and of course, speaking of John the Baptist. I can't help but think about Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, that we see that it's written there, be, the Lord says that before I formed you, that I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations before you were even born. And that's something that I hope that we pass along to our children. That God knows you. He knew you before you were even born. He knew you before the foundations of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us he chose us before the foundations of the world. And God has a marvelous plan for you. He created you. He loves you. He sent a son to die for you. And he has a plan for you. He has a plan for your children. And he has a plan for you as well. And he has known that plan ever since the world even began.
And I pray for you and for me that we would be ones that, Lord, what is it that you would have me to do? How is it that you would have me to serve you? We've talked about that a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we were looking at that section of, of that epistle that deals with the gifts of the Spirit. And I believe that, that, that the Lord desires to use each and every one of us in a very unique way with a very unique plan. He has something for you to do that only you can do. And I pray that we would be ones that, Lord, help me to just flow in that, to know what it is, to, Lord, just be content where you have me and what you want to do, enable me. And so here is Samson. He's been told uh, that, or his mother, that he's going to deliver the children of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So verse 6, so the woman came and told her husband, saying, a man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God, very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O oh my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. I like this. Interesting, she says that, as she relays it to her husband, I'm going to keep this vow while I'm pregnant. And we see that she tells her husband what had happened. I, I've seen a man, a man of God, and his countenance was awesome. And he, she goes on and describes this to him. And, and Manoah, he, he says, oh, Lord, as he prays, Lord, please let the man of God, in verse 8, whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. You know, I hope that's our prayer. That, Lord, that I would see you more. That I want to see you clearly. Right before Jesus went to the cross there in John chapter 12, it was some Gentiles that came to Jerusalem there for the feast. It was the feast of Passover. Did you realize that not only many of the Jews from the known world came pouring in Jerusalem during that time of the feast, but many of the Gentiles did as well. You know why? Because they believed in many gods, the Gentiles. And they believed that the one who had the greatest, grandest temple, that meant that their God was awesome. So they wanted to know, what was this God of Israel all about? And so they would come to Jerusalem to see the temple. And, and that's why one of the reasons I believe Jesus was so upset with the money changers and uh, everything that was going on is they were ripping the people off, God's people off. But what a terrible witness it was to those who were coming and seeing all that that was taking place. But here are these Greeks that come, and they come to the disciples of Jesus there in John's Gospel in chapter 12. And, and they said, we wish to see Jesus. And in that, we see the response of, of Jesus as the disciples came to him saying, hey, these guys want to see you. And it's very interesting. I'll, I'll read it to you here as he would say to them that the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. 
And he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. You know what? What was Jesus' answer to them? He talks about, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. You see, Jesus' answer to these Greeks is very unique because they weren't familiar with Old Testament scripture. And you recall on Sunday morning, we talked about that the gospel message that Paul had preached in the apostles were that Jesus would die according to the scriptures and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. What was the scriptures? The Old Testament scriptures, right? Because the New Testament had not been written at that time that Paul is writing to the Corinthian believers. Obviously, what he is writing is part of the New Testament. But, but here the Greeks that were coming that said, we wish to see Jesus, they wouldn't be familiar with the Old Testament testament uh, scriptures and prophecies concerning jesus so he's talking to them as men of philosophy men of science and he says this that a seed will be put into the ground and it will die but eventually it will come and produce fruit out of the ground you guys want to see jesus tell them they need to see me in the light of my death and burial and my resurrection And I hope and pray that as we go over this text, even this Sunday, that we would see Jesus very clearly and the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what it means to our faith, what it means, the work that he did on Calvary's cross and dying for our sins. But I hope that our prayer is, Lord, we want to see you clearly. Every day when I have devotions, when I read the word of God, When we come here, we want to see Jesus very clearly. We want to see him, don't we? And I hope that that's our desire in our lives. But also this, to teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. That we as parents, grandparents, for those of us perhaps our uncles or aunts, you know, to our nephews and nieces, that we would pray for these little ones and pray for our children, pray for our grandchildren. That, Lord, that we want to teach them the things of God. I can't emphasize the importance of that, especially in the day in which we are living in. And one of the things that I want to do when we finish the book of Judges here in a few weeks, in first part of September, and we'll get the dates out for you, but I want to stop and do a series on standing firm in perilous times. And I think it is so critical and so important, and I commend for all of you coming out on Wednesday nights for us to be ones that not only ourselves, that we are seeing Jesus clearly, that we know him, that we know the word of God, but that is being passed along to our children. That, Lord, help me to teach them the things of the Lord, and not only molding them, but, Lord, help me to unfold them. What do you mean by that? That as they begin to grow, and it's wonderful to see our kids grow, and and it's been a delight for me to watch my kids get older, and Barbara now, a a young adult, just turned 18, and Luke, who's 16, and, and Rachel, and David, who's my youngest, who's 10 now, they're all different, they all have different personalities, and And I just want to unfold them and encourage them in the way that God made them and the things that have been pressed on their hearts. I'm so blessed because they're beginning to ask me questions about, you know, serving the Lord and different things. And I want to encourage them in that. And I hope that you do as well with your children, with your grandchildren, whoever it might mean for you.
So this was an important prayer for here for um, Samuel's father. And so verse 9, And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she's sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will the boy's rule of life and his work? And so the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all I said to the woman, let her be careful. And she may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All I commanded her, let her observe. So he knew from that answer, oh yeah, that that he's going to take the Nazarite vow from his mother's womb. She's not to eat those things that are unclean or drink that wine or similar drink. I, I understand. And in verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. You know what? We want to make you some food, a young goat, and we want to offer that to you. And, and the Lord said to him, No, I won't you know, receive and accept that, but I will accept an, a sacrifice, an offering. And so a burnt offering is going to be given to him. And then Manoah said to the angel, Lord, what is your name, that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? In verse 18, the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? It is wonderful. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6, And his name shall be called what? Wonderful. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace, almighty God. And this is none other than I believe Jesus. His name is wonderful. And what a wonderful Savior that we have. Who would come in the wonderful works that he's done for us and going to Calvary's cross and dying for our sins. The wonderful work that he has done in providing forgiveness of sin. And allowing us to come into a right relationship and providing for that. And, and he is wonderful. And not only forgiving us and saving us, but the work that he's doing in our lives right now, the work that he's doing in this fellowship. And he is such a wonderful, awesome, incredible Savior that we have. And I hope that we would never forget that. His name is wonderful. And we are a blessed people. I know that some of us, as we come into this place, that we've perhaps some of us experienced loss and challenges and difficulties and trials that we're going through. But we can look at our Lord and we can say that you are wonderful because you have saved me and you've forgiven me. And Lord, you're in my heart and your promises are true for me. So his name is wonderful and so we see, verse 19, Manoah took a young goat with the grain offering offered it upon the rock of the Lord, and he did a wonder, wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. And it happened as the flame went up to the, toward heaven from the altar, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. 
And when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. And when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, and Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. We've seen God. We shall surely die. He's been overwhelmed by what has happened and what he's realized, the reverence of God that they have here. It's like the children of Israel, remember, when they came to the mountain of God there in the book of Exodus, and God said, you know what, get ready, I'm going to show myself to my people. And the mountain shook, and there was fire and thunders and lightnings. And there was a voice of God that was heard, and the people fell, and they said, we can't take this lest we die. Just the awesomeness of God. And at that time, they had the reverence of God, realizing that their God is awesome and incredible, almighty. And I hope that we wouldn't forget that. That we serve and we worship an awesome, incredible God. The God of the universe. The creator of the universe. And that we would fear his name. What that means is you revere his name. There is that healthy reverence of the Lord that is in our hearts. But he's overwhelmed by it and he says, We shall surely die. I've met a few Christians that they believe that God is always angry with them. It's like God wants to kill me, and he doesn't love me, and I'm not good enough. And that is not the right way to look at the Lord. Yes, there's a reverence that is there. But to remember the love of our Lord and the compassion and tenderheartedness. He loves you so much. That's why he came and died for you. And so verse 23, his wife said to him, If the Lord had not desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering, a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such a thing as these at this time. So Manoah, his wife, brings some sense into him and says, Listen, if he wanted to kill us, he would have killed us. But he accepted this offering that we gave to him, and he's already told us what's going to happen to our son and what he's going to be about. And I want you to remember this. Whenever you doubt the love of God for you, that you look at the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. And any heart that comes and surrenders to him, that he accepts that heart that surrenders their life to him and says, I believe in you, forgive me, I know that you're Lord and Savior. He accepts that. Because it's for anyone who comes and yields to Jesus Christ and comes in faith believing in him. So he wants to bless us. He doesn't want to kill us. Remember the children of Israel as they were wandering through the wilderness? It was always God wants to kill us. When the Lord was saying to them, I'm carrying you in my arms through this wilderness. So don't forget about the love of the Lord. The Lord demonstrated, or God proved his love for you, and there in Romans chapter 5, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. You know, his name means sonny. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahanae, Dan, between Zorah and Estagal. 
And so chapter 14, now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughter of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah and the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. So here is Samson. He goes down to the area of the Philistines. He's in Timnah. He, he's, you know, thinking, hey, the beach is over there. I'm going to go hang out at the beach over there. And, you know, he's a lot of pretty girls over there and stuff. And he sees one, and he comes back, and he says, I want her. She's not named in here. Maybe her name was Cher. I don't know. So... <laughs> I know who's listening now, so. <laughs> so, anyway, whoever she was, he comes back to mom and dad and says, listen, I want her as a wife. Now, we're seeing the compromise of Samson already in his life. He goes over there where there's the beaches, where there's the daughters of the Philistines, and he's looking, and he's not concerned about what is pleasing in the Lord's eyes. He's more concerned about what's pleasing in his own eyes. And all of us need to be careful of that. It's like Lot. Remember Lot in the book of Genesis, the nephew of, of Abraham? He has his herds, and Abraham has a lot of herds of animals, and and so the herdsmen are butting heads and arguing. And so Abraham comes a lot and says, listen, we don't need to do this. We're brethren. So why don't you go where you want to go, and I'll go the opposite direction. So what did Lot do? He looked towards the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah was because it looked good to him. It looked like a, a, a park to him. It was beautiful, as Genesis says. So he's there camping in that valley. Well, the next time that you see Lot, he's in the city of Sodom. The next time you see him after that, he's at the gate of the city, which means he was in a position of leadership. Now, we know that Sodom was a wicked city, full of sin and immorality. And sometimes when we think about that, we have pictures of, you know, just gross immoralities going on and blatant and all of this. It was bad, as described as we see the angels at that time when they came, when Lot was there. But, listen, there was something stimulating that brought Lot to that city that pulled them and sucked them into the cities. Outside of the city, camping out with his herds, pretty soon he's in the city, and then all of a sudden he's at the gate of the city because it looked good. It was probably economically prosperous, that city, uh, culturally stimulating, philosophically, you know, wonderfully, you know, uh, listening to people and all of this, but it was deception and lies, and it was wrong, and it was sin, and it was carnal. And you see, that's what happens to people. It looks good. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life that John in his epistle in 1 John warns us about. And what we need to be concerned about, Lord, what is pleasing in your eyes? And I want to keep my eyes on you, as Paul would write in Colossians chapter 3. Keep your eyes on the things above, not on the things of the world. And as you keep your eyes on him in the light of if his glory and grace, all other things are going to begin to grow strangely dim. I don't want to look at the world and be all enamored with the world and the pleasures of the world. I want to keep my eyes on the one who's called beautiful and wonderful, and that is Jesus. And that's where we are to keep our eyes and our minds on. Because if we get it 
where we're just getting it on the world all the time, it will begin to pull us. And we begin to say with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, that looks good. And that's what Samson did. So he comes, and he's being all demanding, isn't he, here? He's saying, get her for me as a wife. And so we see in verse 3, Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. So here he's being more demanding. Now Deuteronomy, we know chapter 7 says that they were not the children of Israel to intermarry with those Canaanites and the different tribes and, and those uh, who were not of the children of Israel. They were not to intermarry with those from other countries and uh, from the Canaanites. And so here is Samson wanting to do that. He is in this compromise, and the parents give in. The parents give in. And I want to say this very respectfully, parents, but it needs to be said that you as parents, you are to lead your children, not let the children lead you. And I think increasingly more what we see, and I've dealt with a whole lot of families in the church and out of the church, that the children are leading in the house, and they're being demanding, and the expectations are there that are not godly expectations. And I pray that as moms and dads again, that we would have the courage that we would lead our children and teach them and raise them in the ways of the Lord. And that means at times you're going to have to stand your ground. And there are times that you're going to have to say no when they say, well, everybody else is going over there and everybody else is doing this and all this is going on. And what you say is, I don't answer to everybody else. But I am going to answer to God and how I raised you. And I want what's best for you and so does the Lord. And to sit them down and talk to them, not only why you're saying, you know, no, but the reasons and, and you know what, talk to them. Tell them why. Because I don't want you to get hurt, and I don't want you to, to go in that direction, and I don't want you to get pulled into something that's going to hurt you, and it doesn't matter who it is that you hang out with. The Scripture is very clear on that. And you let them know that you love them, so you're saying no or whatever the situation might mean, but you lead and stand strong. So here are his parents, and, you know, they're giving in to him. And so we see that, verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. You might say, aha, but you see, you know, um, God was moving against the Philistines, and so it's okay. Even though God uses this to accomplish his purpose, it doesn't justify his sin, his compromise, his disobedience. And it doesn't with us as well. God didn't make Samson marry this Philistine. But what God did do is he used the situation of what Samson did for his purposes of keeping the Philistines from dominating Israel. Some people think, well, I can date a non-believer, I can marry a non-believer, whatever it might be, when God says, don't be unequally yoked. I'm going to do that because maybe it'll accomplish what God wants to do. And here's the thing. 
that God is using Samson at this time in spite of his sin, not because of it. And his disobedience is going to catch up with him. So don't tempt the Lord. And I really believe that God, as I mentioned before, would have done more through Samson if he was obedient to the Lord and really truly dedicated. Outwardly he was. He took a Nazarite vow. But inwardly, there's a lot of carnality that's in his heart. And he's going to go through a time of confusion and hurt. And he's going to go through a time where it's going to do him in. Because he continued in it. So here he is saying, I want this woman as a wife, this woman from Timnah. So verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. And so here is Samson. He's down there in the Philistine territory, first of all, in the enemy's territory. On his way back, he walks through a vineyard, and this lion pounces on him, came roaring against him. It reminds you, doesn't it, what Peter wrote in his epistle, to be sober, to be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I'll tell you the truth on this. If you go into his territory, it's a lot easier for him to pounce on you. And to do you in. Don't go into his territory. Don't go into the enemy's territory. And so throughout the New Testament, it tells us all the time to watch, to be vigilant, to, to, to pay attention, to take heed. And then you are to be sober. And then you're put on the whole armor of God. What I see in the New Testament, we're told repeatedly that you are to look up and you are to sober up and you are to suit up. You keep looking to the Lord and you watch out. As the scripture says, you watch. Keep your eyes on the Lord, but you also watch out for the adversary who's desiring to come against you. And you sober up. You be vigilant and sober. Don't be filled with that. Don't be filled with wine, the scripture says in Ephesians 5, but you be full of his wisdom. Be filled with the spirit. You don't have anything that comes into your life that's going to make you not be able to discern what is right and wrong, what is holy and unholy, what is truth, what is deception. So you look up, you sober up, and you suit up. You put on the whole armor of God because know this, that the enemy is going to be throwing those fiery darts at you time and time again, and he's going to be looking at you to have your armor off. But you put on the whole armor of God. And I believe what has been lost in, in much of Christian circles today is so much as emphasis is how can Christianity be, be a playground? And it's not a playground, it's a battleground. It is a battleground out there. And Satan wants to try to wreck our lives. And Paul said to Timothy, you be one that is like a good soldier for Jesus Christ. You're going to endure hardship, Timothy. And he goes on and he talks about that our warfare isn't with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. It is a battle out there. And we need to understand that and realize that and be looking up we need to sober up and we need to suit up for the battle that we are in day in and day out as we are walking with the Lord.
So here he's, he's got this line that comes against him. Verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the line apart as one who had torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So we see now the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him, coming upon him, and he gives this supernatural strength. The Holy Spirit Acts chapter 1, those disciples, you stay here, Jesus said to them, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you to what? Empower you, dynamos, dynamite is where we get the English word, to empower you to be my witnesses. Not that you're going to go out and witness, that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you to empower you to be a witness with your life and with the words that you speak. How we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It can't be a work of the flesh. Lord, continue to just fill me and work through me by your spirit, Lord, empowering me to be the man or woman you want me to be. The teaching of the word of God to equip you to be the man or woman that God wants you to be. The Holy Spirit enabling you, empowering you to be that man or woman of God. Dependent upon him and walking in the spirit. And you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Galatians tells us Samson's walking in the power of the flesh here, you know, in his heart. But despite that, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, gives him supernatural strength. And so verse 7, he went down, talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. And then after some time, he returned to get her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honeys were in the carcass of the lion. You know how guys are. You know, they always got to stop and look at the dead animal or something. So Samson's no different. He stops and he says, I think I'll check out the dead carcass, you know. So he goes there, and there, there is honey in the carcass, verse 9. So he took some of it in his hands and went along eating. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them. And they also ate, but he not, did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So first of all, he's in the Philistines' territory. Second of all, he's walking through the vineyard. He's not even supposed to touch grapes. He shouldn't even be in that area. Then thirdly, all of a sudden, he's touching a dead carcass. He is violating his Nazarite vows. And then what we see, verse 11, and it happened when they, uh, let me back up to verse 9, or verse 10, excuse me. So his father went down to uh, the woman, and Samson gave a feast there for young men uh, used to do so. So here's Samson giving a feast. I think it's kind of like a bachelor party that he's having here. Do you think that there was wine there? I bet there probably was. So he's violating that Nazareth vow not to touch wine, drink wine, touch grapes, the dead carcass. And he's compromising once again. And interesting that he doesn't say anything to his father, does he, when that happened, when he took at least the honey out of the dead carcass. You know, that's what happens when people get involved with sin. They know deep down inside it's wrong, and they hide it. And sometimes when I talk to people and they trying to justify or trying to reason why they're doing something that deep down they know it's wrong, oftentimes I'll say, then why are you hiding it? Why are you hiding that from your spouse? Why are you hiding that from your children? Why are you hiding that from your boss? If it's okay, then why do you need to hide it? So here he hides it. He's having this this 
bachelor party with 30 companions, verse 11. And in verse 12, Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle that we may hear it. So they said to him, verse 14, as Samson said, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Now for three days they could not explain the riddle. So he poses this riddle concerning the line and, and the honey and all of this in verse 15. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband, that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? And so here they're threatening Samson's wife and father and saying we're going to burn your house and and um, we want what's coming to us and so we want to know what the answer to the riddle is so verse 17 now she had wept on him the seven days while the feast lasted and it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down what is sweeter than hunting? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you have not plowed with my heifer, that's a nice way to address your wife, isn't it? He would not have solved my riddle. Guys, don't go there. So then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ascalon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. So she presses him, and he tells the riddle. That's one of Samson's weaknesses that we're going to continue to see is, is women. You know, somebody told me, a very wise man, that was Pastor Chuck. He told us, and he tells us oftentimes, us guys at pastor's conferences, he says, there are three things usually that will lead to your downfall. That is pride. When it comes to your ministry, and Samson was to have a ministry to the Lord, pride will lead to your downfall. When people start coming, they start listening, they, they start in, you know, giving you compliments, you don't want to get prideful. The second thing is greed. When you start getting greedy and wanting more and, and falling into this, and we see that oftentimes in the ministry, the greed that's out there, unfortunately. Third is women. Be careful. There are things in our lives that will bring us down and really affect us and cause us to stumble in our walk and our race with the Lord. And what my prayer is tonight is we come here and as we're just going to spend some time now in worship, that if there's anything in your life, and it doesn't have to necessarily be pride or greed or women or women with you, men or whatever it might be, it might be an attitude of heart. It might be just anger that you have. It might be malice. It might be whatever it is. Compromise of some sort. Maybe just being lethargic in your heart towards the Lord. And the Lord is really pressing tonight. Let's go to him as we worship. 
And it's a loving Father that desires for you to come and say, I confess this, and Lord, help me, and forgive me, Lord. And just allow him to minister his grace and his love and forgiveness to you once again. Any heart that comes in sincerity and truth to him, he accepts. And if he's convicted you, me, of anything tonight, may we lay it out before the Lord and confess it before him and say, Lord, I'm sorry, this is wrong. There's been compromise in my life. There's been this attitude in my heart that I know that's not right. And Lord, I come to you because you are wonderful. And so, Father, we thank you. And I thank you for this time that we've had in your word together tonight. And I thank you for the lessons that we learned, these things written for us, for our examples. We see what happens with a compromised life, walking after the flesh, going after the eyes of the flesh, the eyes of, of lust, pride of life. And I pray that as we just continue to worship here, if there's anything in our hearts that, Lord, that is unlike you, not pleasing to you, compromising and sin according to your word, that we would give it to you, that we would repent. Just turn directions, quit doing and, and desiring to do that, and now just yield our hearts to you. Father, I pray that we would fully understand that you want us to just enter into that fullness of your blessing and joy and peace in our lives as we just walk with you. To have a wholesome life as we just walk in holiness, knowing that your ways are true and right. Father, I pray if there's anybody here, if there is anyone at all, or maybe out in the sanctuary that walked in tonight, that maybe they don't know if they really have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that you would know that Jesus died for you on Calvary's cross because of his love for you. And through Adam, all of us have been condemned to death because we're sinners. But the scripture says the last Adam, Jesus Christ, came and died for you, the Son of God, that you might have forgiveness and you have the hope of heaven as you yield your heart to him and come in faith. And as the scripture says, we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. And as you, you surrender your heart to Jesus, you have that promise of eternal life. And you can pray right where you are, Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died for my sins. I confess I'm a sinner. And I want to have a relationship with you. Be my Lord and Savior. And thank you for saving me. Thank you for the wonderful good news of the gospel. And I believe you rose again and that you're alive. You're from all eternity past and you're for all eternity future. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. So, Lord, do your work in this place tonight. And, Lord, bless your people as we just come yielding to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.